Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we are joined by Ricardo Levens Morales, who describes himself as a healer and trickster organizer disguised as an artist. He was born into the anti-colonial movement in his native Puerto Rico and was drawn into activism in Chicago when his family moved there in 1967. Ricardo left high school early and worked in various industries and over time began to use his art as part of his activism. This activism has included support work for the Black Panthers and Young Lords to participating in or acting in solidarity with farmers, environmental, labor, racial justice, and peace movements. Increasingly, Ricardo sees his art and organizing practices as means to address individual, collective, and historical trauma. He co-leads workshops on trauma and resilience for organizers, as well as trainings on creative organizing, social justice strategy, and sustainable activism, and mentors and supports young activists. Ricardo's art has won numerous awards, but the greatest affirmation is the uses to which it has been put by grassroots movements and communities. For those who don't know the name, you'll definitely know the art. You've seen it around. Uh, Ricardo, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have you here. Your studio, I should have mentioned, Ricardo Levins Morales Art Studio, is located in Minneapolis, Minnesota as well. That's Can we start by talking... Give us a little history. You were born in Puerto Rico. Your parents weren't. Your parents moved from the United States to Puerto Rico uh, in the midst of McCarthyism. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that history uh, and how you ended up back in the United States. Sure. Well, my mother is, um, was New York Puerto Rican. She was, uh, her parents had moved from the island um, in the late teens, early 20s, um, back when, according to my grandmother, if you heard somebody walking down the street speaking Spanish, you would run half a block after them to find out where they were from. So that was before New York became a Spanish speaking country. Um, so my mother was born there. My father was from U um, Ukrainian, Russian, Jewish background. And after they got together um, fairly young, they decided that um, my father came out of family that was labor activists, some were socialists, some were communists in kind of the left Jewish community. Um, my mother was finding her own way toward activism and rebellion. And when they got together, it was during the Korean War and they believed that pretty soon my father would receive his draft notice. And knowing that he would not, he would refuse to go, they expected that he would be spending some time in jail and decided to go and spend the time remaining together that they could in Puerto Rico, that they could, my father could become more familiar and my mother who had visited family but never lived there would have a chance to spend more time. Um, they arrived in 1950, which was right after the um, nationalist rebellion in Puerto Rico, as well as, as you mentioned, McCarthyism in the States, which made it very hard for people with a radical track record to get work friends in, you know, suggested that if they wanted to survive, they better do it on the land. And they ended up being able to acquire a small farm in the western part of the mountains. Um, my father's father had died when Papi was young. And when he got to be 21, he got the one or $2,000 that came with that. And that was enough to put down and get a farm out in the western mountains. So it's really a lesson for me in historical complexity because repression and McCarthyism are not good things, but I've always been grateful that I got to grow up in the place that I did. And that was a direct result of those, of those repressive policies. So yeah, I, you know, we lived there until I was 11 years old. Um, my father eventually, and, and we supported, the, the family supported itself by farming and selling oranges and vegetables in town, some on contract some just in the farmer's market, some bartered with neighbors. My father eventually got a job teaching at the Universidad de Puerto Rico. At a, it was a four hour commute each way. So he would go down for a few days and come back. And when political winds changed again, and there was a purge of leftists at the university and he lost that work and was blacklisted again, we ended up moving to the States. So we landed in Chicago in um, the spring of 1967, which was a very turbulent time. Wow. In multiple ways, we were experiencing the 
you know, the stresses of immigration, mass movements and, re and rebellion. Um, for my sister and I, add adolescence to the mix, and you have a perfect storm of instability. I ended up moving out of home when I was 15. My mother had started drinking from some of those stresses. My father was mostly taking care of her. My sister and I were basically raising our little brother until we each moved out. Aurora at 16, me at 15. Um, lived with other teenagers, basically hustled whatever we could figure out to get enough food to survive. And at the same time, at least for me, to dive into the waters of Chicago activism. I started out attending rallies and protests, which were plentiful. Um, I already had inherited somewhat of a critical perspective from my parents from their activism and their involvement in the independence movement back home. Um, what really shifted me from just being a radical kid who attended things into actually joining organizations and beginning to learn the skills of organizing, making, bringing together people and making things happen was the police murders in the summer and winter of 1969 of the Young Lords leader Manuel Ramos and the Black Panther leaders Fred Hampton and Mark Clark. And so the Panther Defense Committee was my first political home. Um, the neighborhood I lived in did not have a Puerto Rican community, so I would go out to you know, north and west along Halstead Avenue on the bus to do some activities with the Young Lords, who were the Puerto Rican equivalent to the Panthers at the time, you know, go to meetings at their church or help them um, develop People's Park, which was one of their projects taking over an empty lot to prevent uh, an expensive uh, tennis club from being built in the middle of the Puerto Rican backfield. So that's kind of the, the background. There was uh, a period in which the boundaries between different forms of, of activism weren't as sharply drawn as they are now, so that it was not uncommon for the Panther Defense Committee to meet in the home of the chapter head of the Gay Liberation Front. And sometimes there might be women from the women's um, the Chicago Women's Graphics Collective to come and help us work together to create guerrilla theater you know, to highlight the trial of Bobby Seale and Erica Huggins or whatever else needed to be dramatized. And I, my first leaflet that I drew was for a fundraiser for the Chicago Panthers, but I was not entering the movement as an artist. I was entering the movement as an activist kid, right? And I was drawing cartoons and copying posters, kind of myself. I mean, a lot of, I think a lot of my friends didn't realize actually that I did art. But slowly over the years, you know, and it's sort of going forward past Chicago, I began using my art more intentionally as part of political activism. You mentioned that the lines are so starkly drawn today. Some of that is being broken down. I mean, we see that, of course, we're, we're participating in that. But it does also seem like the movements are very separate um, and that even culturally, geographically, I mean, Chicago today is perhaps the most segregated urban city in the United States. Um, why do you think that is? What do you think we can do uh, to help build those bonds, uh, that solidarity, that um, uh, cross ethnic, geographical, racial boundaries, especially at this time? Well, I share the observation that there's some of that is disintegrating now, some of those divisions uh, in this moment where people who are um, responding to police racism and violence and brutality are understanding viscerally that if you want to abolish police, you need to also provide people with what they need to live, with decent housing, with income, with you know educational opportunities and clean, safe neighborhoods, right? So all of these issues are coming together in people's minds in a way that's been separated. And I think part of the reason for that siloing is the rise of the nonprofit system, which while they've been around as a legal form for decades, really took off in the 1960s and 70s as a response to the mass movements. So that when you see groups like the Panthers and the Lords and, and others, uh, many of the movements combined kind of community service type um, programs along with activism 
uh, and interference and confrontation. And what happened was the, when these groups were repressed rather brutally by counterintelligence programs of the government, the kind of instinct of people in the community, in the barrio, in the hood, to young people to protect themselves and join together got channeled into the street gangs, which were kind of that same confrontative spirit, but without the politics. And the programs got channeled into the, into the nonprofit social service sector, again, um, deprived of their political content. Similarly, the nonprofits really structured activism around individual constituencies lobbying for benefits to get funding from the 1%, which really framed other communities as their competitors. Um, Fred Hampton, besides being the spark that brought me into organizing, is also somebody who's profoundly uh, influenced my political view of how organizing happens. So that when they began making alliances, reaching out to the Young Lords and to several other groups, that included the White Street Gang, the Young Patriots. And they did so by asking not how do we how do we mess with these kids right who are wearing confederate flags on their jackets you know they're out of the of appalachian migrant stream the southern migrant stream a lot of them have family members in the clan it's not how do we you know mess with these mfs it's what they really asked was why are these people hurting in a system based on white supremacy how come these white kids are out there wearing jackets and gang banging and being vamped on by the cops Right, and they found out that they lived in rat-infested apartments, and they had few job prospects and crappy schools. Very much the same. Some of the Panthers went out to um, the uptown area where these these guys were from, and they said they were shocked by the conditions. Right, so that their model of organizing was not let's find meeting ground halfway, let's go halfway between liber a liberation vision and a racist vision. They instead said we have a better offer our vision of liberation actually is big enough for you. And by the end, the young lords, I mean, I'm sorry, the Patriots were also modeling their programs on the law, on the Lords and the Panthers. They were uh, created a free breakfast for children program, uh, health clinic, police patrols, and all these kinds of things. They did joint organizing around police repression, around housing conditions, bringing in the elders of their communities. They had joint forums on police brutality and so forth. So that's in the Fred Hampton vision of the world. You know, and no one can question that Hampton was a leader of black people in the black community, fully rooted in that identity. But to him, that identity is what you bring to the table of solidarity, where you sit down with other people from other identities who've done their own work, who've learned their own history, who know who they are. And then you come together because when you have an empire to bring down, you need everybody. When all you need is to get funding for quote unquote at-risk kids in a particular neighborhood, that doesn't rely on solidarity, that relies on making a good case to your funder. So that instead of a stepping stone toward solidarity, the nonprofits has converted identity into a brand. This is my brand, I must def defend my intellectual property rights. Um, I have to defend my language. You know, when the, um, La Raza de la, uh, la, Los Siete de la Raza, which was a group of Chicano activists in LA, got busted on trumped up charges. People came around and they set up a de defense committee and they started talking about brown power and borrowing some of the Panther tactics. And instead of saying, hey, whoa, that's ours, the Panthers sent organizers to train them. And they offered the central, center part of their newspaper for something like six months. They, you, this is your paper for the next six months to use for your defense work. And at the end of that, come September, it will help you spin off and continue as an independent paper. Totally different vision for how groups communicate with each other. And I think partly telling that story is one of the, one of the antidotes. I mean, I certainly don't know all the answers to that, but telling those stories and framing our struggles in a way that is a big enough container for everybody. That this is not about me. This is really about us, even when it's about me. That defending the people of Standing Rock against a pipeline is their struggle. And they are leading that struggle, but that struggle is one we all have a stake in. It's all of ours. 
It's not something that, oh, we can't support these people because the lawyers on our board will warn us that it's not part of our mission statement and the funders will get annoyed. No, this, this resonates very deeply. I have had a pretty horrific experience with NGOs over the last 15 years of doing this work. When I got home from uh, being in the Marine Corps, I joined a national anti-war organization, uh, veterans organization, and man, so I mean, the things you're saying are just, they're touching nerves that I haven't really thought about in a while because we have done our best to sort of, well, let me backtrack. One of the reasons why we opened this community space, multiple reasons, one of the main reasons we opened this space was because we wanted to be sort of independent of that NGO complex. I mean, Mm -hmm. and it's been a tough slog so far. I mean, it's not, you know, I'm, I was going to ask you, as someone who's participated in so many different projects, you have your own art studio today. How have you found, um, or what would your advice be to people who are trying to find a way independent of that NGO complex? That it's not, in fact, an easy route. I mean, Sergio and I have found out over the last three and a half years that we've had this space. You know, we don't have a ton of money to offer people. We have something deeper than that. I think we have something that's much more substantial, uh, something that can be built um, and carried with the community for a very long time and in the, in the purpose of, you know, meaningful work that actually impacts uh, poor and working class communities, uh, marginalized communities, people who don't have a voice. But at the same time, it is, it is very difficult because we see the divisions in our city. Uh, even amongst, you know, we're trying, we're organizing now specifically within the black community and within the black community there's many many divisions people are coming to us saying man you know this group is in competition with this group for the funding or this group's at this group's throat because they didn't support this we are coming i think from a similar political position at least in so far as you know that vision that fred hampton vision for how to organize we think is mm-hmm. is the way to go what would your advice be to people who are trying to create those independent projects and what are the lessons both good and bad uh, that you would take from your experiences in the 1960s and 70s that you you would sort of try and uh, you know impart on movement activists today well I can share some of the lessons and um, experiences that I've had that doesn't mean I have the answer to those questions sure um, I was part of forming the Northland Booster Collective in 1979, which create, you know was sort of doing this kind of political work for movements. And it actually lasted until 2000, 2009. So that was a 30 year run, which is quite an achievement. And we decided very early on not to go for grant money. We already had the instinct in 1980 that the nonprofit funding system was not gonna work for what we were trying to do. Um, and the progressive funders at that time didn't understand working class organizing or grassroots, you know, rebellion organizing, anti-racist organizing. Um, they were, you know, the business organizations thought we were a radical group. The arts groups, the arts funders thought we were too political. That was really available to us anyway. Um, and that's, I want to mention that too, because that's sort of, Um, kind of was part of the background of our survival as a group during the times between the upsurges, right? So we think about the lessons of the 60s or the lessons of the current upsurge, but what about the lessons of the 1980s, the 1990s, of long periods when mass movements were in retreat, when actually talking openly and questioningly about capitalism was just not, that would just, was crazy talk right? How could you talk that way? You're just, you never got over the 60s. Come on, grow up, right? Um, So Northland did that, and we printed and sold things to try to survive. Um, Like you say, it's not an easy route, especially because we had no idea that we had to navigate the waters of a capitalist economy. So we made a lot of mistakes, ended up in debt. You know, two winters in Minnesota, we went through without heating the building. As the landlord was pocketing the heating bill instead of paying the gas company, you know? So it was difficult at the same time, we came through without having to make the kinds of compromises to get funding that even subtly come into play when the funders have their theme for the year. And then people start making proposals to fit that theme. 
right, rather than following their own impulses. We had nothing to lose. No one was going to give us money anyway. So being able to maintain the same political integrity that we started out with in a different political era through the Reagan years and the, and the you know, Bush years and Clinton and all these other clowns who have come through since, right? Now, fast forward to the current period, and one of the groups that I've been involved with um, for the last four and a half years or so since we started is called MPD 150. And we were formed when we noticed that the Minneapolis Police Department was about to celebrate its 150th anniversary or market. The, police, the cops never noticed that actually, so they didn't take advantage of it. But we thought maybe this would be a good time for a performance review of the police department. And so we did an extensive in-depth history that had never been done. We interviewed people about the present time, um, people on the street, social service people, people in battered women's shelters, asking what has been your experience with the police, and then worked in community spaces and brainstorms and, and um, you know, little underfunded programs to envision what might Minneapolis look like if this police force were not here. Because our history established very clearly their roots in among the, with the slave catchers, then the factory night watches and the Texas Rangers, all of these racist organizations that were put into place to maintain white privilege, right? And white supremacy and the power of the wealthy, right? And, and what our report made very clear was that that is their essence. It's not, these are not just bad practices that cops have picked up along the way. That's the core of their mission. The reason I'm mentioning this is because we faced that same kind of question. You know, we decided to invite activists from throughout the Minneapolis ecosystem to start working on this if they were interested and not invite organizations to come together as a coalition because of the kind of baggage and competition that they carry with them. Some members of these organizations came. And then throughout our political practice, we took, a, took the stance that we're a narrative organization. Our role is to shift the narrative so that the next time the cops murder somebody, people will not be just demanding um, another civilian review board or police residency requirements or grand juries, but will actually be thinking about, well, maybe the police aren't the answer. Maybe there's something beyond. So as a narrative organization, we said, well, we're not going to put out press releases whenever something bad happens. We're not going to demand a place at the mic and organize demonstrations. There are plenty of people doing that. We're here to put wind in everybody's sails, right? So that when we organize an exhibit, for example, based on our report, we had panels. Our people didn't sit on those panels. We had community activists and grassroots leaders coming and being on the panels, right? So that we were able to create a relationship with the movement where we were not seen as competition or a threat because we weren't trying to take up anybody else's oxygen. Of course, now some of the reformist groups, now that the abolition message has become so powerfully amplified by the rebellion after George Floyd's murder, um, some of the reformist groups are starting to feel really nervous because they're feeling, uh, wait a minute, this is not the agenda that we wanted. But I think part of the reason that our group and the groups that we're allied with have been able to be um, effective is because we've tried not to simply jump into that competitive environment as one more entry. And in fact, from the beginning, we set the goal of sunsetting out. We're here for a particular purpose. We want to permanently change the conversation around policing, and then we will close shop after making sure that our materials and our, our lesson plans, et cetera, will be able to live on when we're gone. Those plans have been postponed by the, by the rebellion in the moment, it, it made clear we still have some important work to do in this moment. But these are some of the ways in which we've tried to address that. But I think the other, the other question is keeping the eyes on, eyes on the prize. One of the lessons that I've learned from the field of trauma healing is that, and the interface between that and organizing, is that when we feel powerless, we turn on each other. And part of living in an era where people can think about winning piecemeal reforms but can't really imagine transformation is that we're 
essentially accepting a degree of disappointment and powerlessness, even as we're doing our work. And it seems less vital that we figure out ways to work together and more vital that I feel powerful. And if I can't make a dent in Monsanto, I can sure cause some bruises to appear on you, right? And so we have this infighting so that when you know, activists come to me and say, hey, these people, we're having all of this division and all of a sudden people are at each other's throats or the coalition is starting to fall apart. The question I recommend is not why are these folks being such assholes, but what is happening right now or what has just happened that is making people feel powerless and less hopeful? Because that's when we self-medicate for that powerlessness by enacting it. It's a coping mechanism trying to act powerful in relation to each other and saying, well, I can now see that we're not getting anywhere and it's really because of you. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Keeping up that rhythm, that rhythm of what is the North Star, where are we going is hopeful. And just one more thing is that in setting out to do the work we did around police, the police narrative, we were very clear that our goal was to practice hope-based organizing that's what brings people in with a real sense of excitement even when the struggle gets hard rather than getting up in the morning saying i'm going to fight like hell for body cams or you know any of these other you know useless reforms that never set anybody's heart on fire so yes organizing with a clear vision and also a credible vision of hope so that it, we did, weren't just about saying, oh, imagine a police-free future. We're saying, well, here are the concrete steps we can take. Here's how you begin a process of defunding, of transferring resources away, of removing these powers from the police. So you have a transition plan where you can look at where we are, that nice dream we want to get to and say, oh, if there's actually land, a land mass connecting us to there, that you can actually get there by walking. I wanted to ask you how you ended up in Minneapolis, but maybe we can circle back to that because I want to talk about obviously the role of art in this process, how you view art. Mm -hmm. One of the, I mean, one of the challenges that we've faced here in this small Rust Belt town of 30,000 people in Northwest Indiana is that most of the art that's been created is sort of this like petty bourgeois art that the yuppies from Chicago, like kind of rich people who own like second homes here and then they come down and there's like, you know, they bring their artists in that are usually older folks. Um, not that there's anything wrong with older folks, of course, but that the, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's like, you know, you're taught, like if you're trying to get some 80 year old uh, cat who is living in a $500,000 home by the beach, but 75% of our cities living on less than $25,000 a year, living in poverty, one third of the city's black. There's no spaces for black artists there's no spaces for the local immigrant community. Um, our thinking with this was also to try and sort of demystify art that the way we grew up or where we grew up and how we grew up in that era, you know, we've been told that like the artist is this special person with these special talents and that, um, that have been bestowed on them by whoever the creator, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that the rest of us are just supposed to be workers. I mean, it reminds me a lot of capitalism. It's like a cultural division of labor, you know, where it's like, this, these people are artists. That's what they do. The rest of you are just supposed to enjoy this or, you know, consume it. However, um, part of what we wanted to do with the space was to combine political efforts, cultural efforts. We've seen this in many of the bigger cities that we've been to and organized with and in countries and cities around the world. But in these smaller cities, especially scattered throughout the Rust Belt, the ones I'm most familiar with, um, you know, a lot of those spaces simply don't exist. I mean, one of the things I was thinking about as you were speaking is that the context is so fundamentally different between a place like Minneapolis and a place like Michigan City. There is overlap, no doubt, and we're under many of the same systems of oppression. Uh, one of the challenges we face is that we, I think, sometimes find ourselves trying to do everything in too much because not enough exists. So I think what we've shifted to over the last several months and even this last year, what we've been thinking a lot about it's like, how can we best cultivate other communities, other people to create their own things as best we can, knowing that we don't have, there isn't a, a local black political organization that we can reach out to or a local, oh, go ahead, go ahead. 
Sorry, I have to answer um, a door, which is unfortunate. Hopefully you can edit this out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was um, an artist who actually had pieces in our exhibit coming to pick it up, speaking about art and organizing. So. Right on. No, no, no. We understand. We have people coming in. We, we, this is like the only time we're able to lock our doors, though, with the uh, oh, with the pandemic okay, so things of, you know. Yeah. I walked out in the middle of, a, you know, sort of a framing that you were doing. So I don't know if we can recapture that. Where yeah. Doing. Yeah. Let me do that very quickly. I the, One point I would just like to make and this is primarily for people listening, but also I think for yourself, just to give you some context of where we're at. One of the primary differences between some of the bigger cities and maybe even some of the smaller cities or towns that have an organizing base is that Michigan City, like a lot of cities, I mean, Gary, Indiana is another one, uh, South Bend to a certain extent, Whiting, Hammond, uh, uh, Ferguson, Missouri. I mean, we could go on and on. There's a lot of places in these areas that actually don't have existing organizations. One of the challenges we've faced, and I say this for people who are listening or watching, uh, who are going to be, who also live in similar cities or towns, our size and in this sort of composition, is that we, I think, sometimes have found ourselves trying to do too much at once um, because we don't have a lot of organization or any, actually, let me be very clear, we don't have any organizations um, to partner with because they don't exist in the city outside of the ones that we've sort of helped uh, cultivate. That's a much different thing. Um, some of the existing organizations fall under that umbrella of like the NGO complex, some of them very destructive. In fact, some of them so destructive that they're more distrust by people within their own communities than they are from the outside. The circling back to art and the role of art. I just say that as an aside for people. We have seen that a lot of the art has been, I mean, the easiest way to say this is that art in many ways has been gentrified right now. I mean, so most of the art that's being promoted, for instance, our city funded an entire art like colony downtown in the Uptown Arts District. Um, this was like two buildings that they bought, started moving people in from all over the country. Um, we need affordable housing for people who live here. Uh, they created affordable housing to bring in college graduate artists uh, so they can live here and for a year or two produce art and then leave. Um, this is sort of the context in which we're operating. And we've seen in many of the bigger cities, art and, and politics just meshing and moving together in many interesting ways. Um, we've tried to incorporate that here. One of the challenges we face is that people still view artists here as like this kind of separate entity in society that like they're out there creating their art in their garage or in their nice little art studio or whatever and that they're kind of detached from the community and not only detached from the community but that much of what they're creating doesn't necessarily re reflect what's going on in the community or those struggles or that kind of like resistance and resilience that people in the communities uh you know are showing all the time in the face of you know massive injustice and inequalities and so on um, what do you think today is the role of art? We have so many different mediums. Um, we have digital mediums. We have still people like now we have a lot of younger people going back to making zines, you know, which I find interesting because these were some of the first political art that I encountered. Um, that's a roundabout way to not, not asking a question at all that, <laughs> That's just that, I, but I'm interested in, yeah, how do you, how can we demystify art for people? How can we bring this back down to the people to let everyone know or to, to sort of stoke that inherent creative quality that all of us have? Or at least that's how I see, you know. This, um, really a couple of ways of, of teaching or of helping to people, you know, experience one is firsthand, one is secondhand. So people need to have ways of participating that teaches that lesson and also hear stories that reinforce it. Right. Um, one of the reasons that I even mentioned that I dropped out of high school is for that reason, just to demystify. I never went to art school. Um, I only remember taking one art class in fifth grade and I hated it. It was messed up, right? So just to say, okay, well, I learned to draw by getting a few tips from people, but mostly just copying things I liked. 
and until I picked up the technique and then I'd find some other artist to copy or cartoonist in the newspaper or whatever, right? So, um, so storytelling is very important. One, um, certainly if you have access to teachers and classrooms, there's practices that can be, exercises that can be done in class, like um, asking, having the kids go through a process of creating images around something that they really care about. And, and there's ways to try to break the shell, right? Because I know from, you know, working with teenage high school age boys, for example, that a lot of their way of coping is to pretend not to care about anything, right? I'm sort of, I'm not here even, my hat's over my eyes, I'm aloof, right? Um, which is of course ridiculous because Again, it's just another layer of apathy is just another form of, of hopelessness of not wanting to be disappointed and taking a risk. So there's ways to trick people around that to, you know, just create something and then see what they created, right? Um, I think another, there's a good reason that in places where organizing isn't happening, that it often begins with some kind of cultural presence, you know, a regular film, film showings about movements and movement history and maybe one said if you're really trying to promote artistic stuff the way art was was used um open mic have somebody you know help the young kids create their raps or spoken word or whatever and go through an exercise about how to draw the story out right it's all about the political nature of art comes from going to the deep authentic root and drawing a genuine story out. And then you start, stuff starts moving, right? The things that come out of people once they're given the space, the permission, and a little bit of technique, um, you know, support or coaching uh, can be quite remarkable. Um, you know, likewise, just creating, you know, if you have the chance and the backing to be able to do a mural or something. But I think it's really about the question in your community, in your city, what is the truth that needs to be told and who is it that needs to tell it, right? Because to me, truth telling is really an important component. My own view of art as where I am now is as a medicinal practice. Art is like a bag of herbs, um, different techniques, different stories are appropriate for um, different conditions. There's art that just like medicines can raise a fever or lower a fever, um, stimulate memory, um, support the immune system. The same is true of art, is that there's art that can polarize a situation. When you need to draw clear lines of demarcation, it can depolarize. When people are in conflict that is getting out of hand or that is unnecessary, um, it can stimulate collective memory. Um, in the community I'm from in Puerto Rico, uh, I can't remember more than 10 years ago, my sister and I started a little project. We would go back to the neighborhood up in the Western mountains and she was doing interviews with elders and we would take some of that and some of her, you know, sort of poetic sensibility, combine it with photographs that we took or art that I created and create these little posters about people in the community or about the experience of that barrio and pride in the community because we realized that that area was not yet ripe for organizing. We had talked about with people in the community, how can we, how can we promote more diverse agriculture so people aren't so dependent on coffee, for example, which is very volatile and you, know, you lose people to the city when the market fluctuates, right? But we realized that what was missing is that people didn't have a sense of knowledge or pride of the history of the community. They didn't know that that flat spot by the by the side of the road used to be the bakery and store where their parents went for bread every morning, right? They didn't under, you know, know anything about this place where they were. And so we started these conversations simply by creating this art. And then the elders would start arguing about who was in the picture and the, their kids were saying, mommy, you never told us. Hmm. They would say, I didn't think you cared. And their little kids would just be listening, right? So that sometimes you have to prepare the soil before you can plant. Because when you plant good organizing seeds in soil that just doesn't have the nutrients, not gonna grow. Sometimes it takes some pre-work. And sometimes you don't know. I mean, sometimes there are people readier than you think, you know, to move on an issue. But that part 
depends on what winds are blowing in from elsewhere. Right. And when the whole country is fairly suppressed and demobilized, you're not going to get those winds blowing in from other cities or other places with examples of people on the move, right? Mm-hmm. During the civil rights movement, I was just reading a story from this young woman from um, southern Louisiana who was talking about how they were seeing this stuff happen on the move, um, in the news and the civil rights movement and waiting for something to happen here because nothing ever happens here, right? Those winds provided the inspiration for her to decide to join some activism. So cross currents, cross fertilization, um, yeah, yeah. The um, the period in the late 1700s was a big battle in the Caribbean area of all the authorities of all the colonial powers trying to prevent news from spreading among the plantations of the different colonies about the French Revolution or about other things happening, rebellions happening in other places because. If you can suppress communication and news and a bigger picture of the world, it's easier to control people. What do you make of the situation now? I mean, we've got what you're saying jives with what we're seeing. I mean, in other words, we've got people in the streets in rural towns and small towns in Northwest Indiana that had never been mobilized before. Um, I'm talking cities that are like, not even cities, I mean, towns that are like five, six, seven hundred people, 99.5% white, uh, getting 50 or 100 people to show up to rallies. Nobody's ever seen anything like that. Um, so, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the winds blowing from outside, I mean, this starting in Minneapolis, spreading all over the country and even finding its way to the you know corners like northwest Indiana or northeastern Indiana. Uh, is something that I've never seen, uh, at least in the last 18 years that I've been conscious of these things. Um, what about the moment now moving forward? What are you, not specifically say your work, and, and this is understanding, I mean, this is sort of assumed in any question we ask any of our guests. We don't we don't expect you to have all of the answers, Ricardo, <laughs> um, and we don't think that those are just the answers. Um, but I do think that there's a lot of people out there who have a tremendous amount of experience and knowledge. And I think it's really important for us to connect with people within the movement who have that experience and knowledge to see how we can best apply it. I mean, you've seen everything from anti-colonial struggles to the struggles you saw in Chicago in the United States, organizing and doing work through the eighties and nineties when there weren't that many mass movements, as you mentioned, um, through the Bush years, through the Obama years, now with Trump in office. That's a lot of accumulated knowledge, wisdom, mistakes, um, and successes along the way. What do you think is the... Let me ask it in a different way. What do you think the vehicle is for change in, in this kind of a context? In other words, we believe in sort of approaching elections in a strategic way, if possible, Um, But we also believe in creating alternative institutions. We also support strikes. We also support direct actions, um, symbolic events, street theater, the whole range of tactics. But do you think that, in other words, we've been having this conversation with a lot of thinkers lately about how to reimagine revolution. You know, there's like a way that I think throughout the years, throughout the decades, we're sort of left with some of these ghosts from the 20th century um, both projects that succeeded to a varying degrees, but also projects that, that failed or people that, you know, might want to distance themselves from those. How do you think about the movement? I mean, do you still use the word revolution? Is that what you're thinking? And when, and if you do use that word, and if you think that's an appropriate concept, and I don't want to fight over like the, you know, cause I don't care really what you call it, but what do you think this moment calls for? You know, maybe that's a, a more broad yeah. way to ask that question. Sure. Yeah, and I'm quite comfortable with the with the words revolution or revolutionary. I mean, of course, what language you use depends on who you're speaking with, of course. You know, that it's more important to get across the meaning than to be attached to, to the lingo. Um, yeah. um, one of the videos I have on my website, I talk about the second grader program, which is the idea that a program for social justice to really getting traction has to be explainable by a second grader. So that if we start, for example, 
plank on the program might be something like nobody gets seconds till everyone's head firsts. That's profoundly revolutionary. Yeah. It's incompatible with capitalism, and yet it will resonate with almost everybody, right? Because that's what they learned around their table, most likely, right? So it's really about creating a, compe a compelling story that tells what we're really talking about. But also, it doesn't necessarily mean shying away from words that become stigmatized because the system is very good at that, of simply co-opting words, absorbing them, either ridiculing them in by the right wing or absorbing them by the nonprofits. Um, so we can't always just let go of words just because somebody else is misusing them. But as far as what's needed, yeah, I mean, the what's needed is always something old and something new. Um, certainly we're seeing a lot of the same kinds of struggles happening now as were happening in the late 1960s, but in a completely different context. So that when I came into the political movements, the US empire had not yet quite reached the peak of its power. It didn't get there until the early to mid seventies and it's been in decline ever since. And now we're in a very advanced stage of decomposition so that the same kinds of police atrocities are happening in a totally different context. The narrative that holds the empire together is less and less credible to people, right? Um, and so that also means that the offers that have been made to bribe and fool and scare people are not working in the same way they used to. When the narrative that holds an empire together is falling apart, then people have to either step outside of that narrative and look for a better offer. As we're seeing with the all white towns having Black Lives Matter you know, protests, because that narrative that made supporting white police brutality um, seem like the best choice no longer seems like a good choice, right? And then you have people who need to cling more and more. And the price of that is in order to cling to the myth of the empire, you have to find ways of um, delegitimizing de um, rationality, right? and just you know, questioning or challenging the idea that there are things that can be proven, that there's history that, you know, that challenges the, the empire, right? So there's, you have people cling more and more and becoming more irrational, which is kind of where you get a base for fascism, which is an irrational movement of atomized, isolated people all in a movement, which is a strange contradiction rather than a vision of humanity, cooperation, sustainability, which is the alternate narrative that we're offering, that we're putting on the table, and is starting to seem more attractive to people, in part because the empire can't deliver anymore. It's not able to deliver the goods that it used to mollify and sedate people. And I'm not just talking about white people, right? The entire nonprofit system is also in decline because the 1% is not so interested in it anymore. We've reached that stage of the empire where in order to sustain profitability, you have a 1% and their managerial class that is increasingly pathological. So that idea that you share some of the goods so that the people won't rebel, that doesn't seem so appealing. It's now, now we want all the goods, right? And it's not very convincing to the people who are increasingly deprived. No wonder you give world-class military hardware to a rink-eating police department in Ferguson, Missouri. Really what it requires, right? And I think what happened to George Floyd in the context of that particular moment is in a time when there was a great deal of fragility. You know, something like that is not enough to tip an empire by itself. It has to be at a tipping point. Right, and so we see this accumulation. So people are absolutely correct. If someone's been around for a while, yes, this time is different from other times. This is a turning point of a different kind than we've been seeing. Some of the things are the same. Some of the same forces are at work. Some of the same efforts to divide and co-opt are happening, and they're happening with much better technology than in the past. But also, we're at a historical moment that is that we're dealing with the instability of the moment that includes the instability of the empire, which creates a whole different set of dangers and possibilities. 
how do you think about the contradiction? It takes a while to develop the kind of soil needed to plant those seeds. I think everyone who's been involved in organizing efforts, who has read about organizing efforts, understands that it takes a very long time uh, to create that soil to then build and, and cultivate the kind of bonds, relationships, and trust needed to engage in the kind of activities that would have an impact on empire, capitalism, and so forth. It seems that one of the big contradictions we face today uh, in this context is that in this state of rapid decline, the empire in decline, global capitalism in decline, um, or increasingly unable to meet the needs of more and more people and then throwing more and more people into states of misery uh, and, and sort of brutality. Um, but also the underlying thing uh, that I think haunts all of us is the ecological uh, situation, that runaway climate change and broader ecological devastation are sort of putting a, a clock on the time that we have left to make the kind of radical changes that we need. Is that the same way that you view this? And, and, and I don't want to, in, in other words, I don't want to ask the question assuming that that's how you see things. That's how we generally see things. And it's one of the contradictions I think that we face. Do you agree with that? And if you do, how do you deal with that contradiction through your work? Maybe some of that is through art, but then maybe some of that just in your view on sort of organizing practices and how we can sort of speed up a process that you can't necessarily speed up, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, this is a challenge that runs through organizing no matter what era we're in. And yes, absolutely, the inherent um, sort of imperative of capitalism to destroy the world is advanced enough that, yes, we're closer to the, to the waterfall in our little boat than, than we have been before. And the tension, the, the tension that, you're, um, that you're naming here, this contradiction, is between urgency and patience, right? And maintaining that balance between urgency and patience is one of the great challenges of social justice work. Because if you only respond out of urgency, you're not setting in place the changes that need to be there so that in five years, you'll have something more than urgency. Yeah. You have to be able to change conditions. On the other hand, if you're just doing the long-term patient work, you're not dealing with the survival needs of the moment. You're not providing oxygen to people who need it now and so forth. So that that is never going to be resolved. That's something you manage. You don't resolve it. But you still always need both. Because if we operate out of panic, only on the urgency side, we're going to break things. And that does nobody any good, even though the urgency is real. So you always have to have the, the patience. You always have to honor the rate of which a nervous system heals from trauma. You have to create those spaces at the same time that you're out there doing the, the work around urgency. So my work as an artist is always, a lot of it responds to immediate events, but I'm always also dealing with the underlying truths, right? So that in the body, a condition of systemic inflammation, when you're swelling all the time, your immune system is hyperactive, leaves you susceptible to all kinds of other diseases either chronic or infections. And in society, hopelessness is that underlying condition of systemic inflammation. So that my art always has to be able to support people's need to be hopeful. That's the long-term work. Now, when it comes to soil building, I think of crises as kind of when we get our report card on how we've been doing in the meantime, like what's organizing put into place. And we can see that some things we've done really well there's been some important narrative shift going on. Some things not so well. We don't have the historically stable um, organization, organizational forms that can carry us through crises. We have become better at um, temporary organizations that can still be effective in the short term of creating, you know, some some kinds of change. So we have all of these different um, issues going on. But I think that it's important to know that we're never starting from scratch. Um, you know, the saying is uh, that the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago, and the next best time is today. To me means that we never give up and say, no, it's only about urgency. We always have to be planting the seeds of the future, the consciousness that allows people to see the connections and the possibility of real change. That's what we're really talking about in tending the soil, right? That always has to be 
core to what we're doing, well, we can do that in the way we do the urgent work. So for example, here in Minneapolis, there was um, the organization of the Tenants Organization, Tenants United for Justice, um, with a lot of renters, who mean, which means a lot of people of color, a lot of immigrants, a whole United Nations of tenants. There are five buildings owned by this one landlord, a slumlord, and they start out just fighting for minimal improvements to have the plumbing work, to have the windows work, to not have cockroaches. And he fought every step of the way. And over a period of three or four years, they shifted from saying, we want repairs to no, we want to buy these buildings. We want to run them as a co-op. And the city and the foundations and everybody said, ain't going to happen. There are all of these obstacles in the way. The landlord refused, even if he was indicted for perjury and all this other crap. No, it's not going to happen. Well, it happened. Right? So you have this struggle built around urgent needs that all of a sudden shifted and the language shifted from saying, hey, y'all out there in the community, we want you to support us because we deserve good housing, shifted to, hey, you support us because we are a foothold of the future that all of us need. And the future of a sane housing system begins with us. So you all have a personal stake in supporting us, right? That's what I mean by combining these levels, right? Because really what we need to do in a time of crisis like this, what we do to respond to emergency has to prefigure the future because that gives people confidence that that future is possible. We see that in the COVID response of all the mutual aid work that has gone on, right? All of these ways in which people have risen to the occasion for each other. I don't want to take too much of your time because we've already taken an hour of your day. I appreciate um, everything you have to say, Ricardo, everyone who's told me to check out your work. I mean, I knew who you were. Let me put it this way. It's weird because I've seen your art everywhere throughout the years, had never heard you speak, had never heard anything else about you. You were just this mystery in my mind of somebody who created these wonderful posters that I saw all over different events and, and conferences. And then a good friend of ours, uh, Kim Sipes, uh, sent me a message and he said, look, you need to get Ricardo on your program. He's like, he's going to talk, he's going to blow your mind with what he says. And you have thoroughly blown my mind. I mean, I we interview a lot of people, uh, Ricardo, and this has been one of my favorite interviews and probably one of the most useful in terms of what organizers and activists and artists and people who are trying to make a difference in their communities could listen to. I can't uh, thank you enough for that. Appreciate that. I mean, in a, in a, in a very real way. Um, the last thing I will say or ask is how can people plug into your work? How are you holding up at the studio? How's the studio holding up? This is a tough time for everybody who has a space. One of the reasons we're doing this media project is so we can continue to sort of generate, independently generate funds to keep the doors open at a time when we don't really sell much out of the space. I mean, usually people were, we hold poetry slams, live music events, um, documentary film screenings. I mean, all that kind of stuff is the, the way that we would bring people in uh, to raise money. We started doing the media project as a way to set up a Patreon account so people could just donate $1, $3, $5 a month. That way, when this is over, we can open the place back up. Um, how are you holding up? How's the place holding up? And how can people support your work? Yeah, well, strangely enough, we're managing to maintain a pretty high degree of stability. We were already set up for doing a lot of commerce online. Um, and given that we, that we view the work here as medicinal, people apparently want medicine in times of crisis. And we're continuing creating new stuff. I mean, made a series of um, animals giving pandemic advice, you know, what to do in a pandemic that I hadn't realized this would happen, but parents and teachers and, you know, children's programmers have used greatly. So we made it into a coloring book and we turned it into a free download. We've created a lot of buttons for the struggle here and things like that. We just give away for free because we don't want to profiteer off of that. The place has been used as a staging area for emergency supplies. So just being integrated in the community in that way, and also just lucking out in terms of the kinds of ways in which we provide a lot of art and storytelling materials at a low price so that we're not, you know, we're not art world crisis for things. You can buy a poster for 12 bucks or whatever and move cards and things like that. So that's been working pretty well. Um, I think that certainly I would love for people to look at the work we have here and listen to the videos or the writings, look at the artwork and 
if anything is helpful to you, because I think to me, the way I feel that we're really being helped is for people seeing how the work that I do here and that we do here can help you. So I most want you to do is not, oh, let's go spend some money there because Ricardo, this artist needs help, but because, wow, this is really helpful to what I'm doing. And if there's something that would really, based on what I'm, what you see there, if there's something that would really help your organizing or your work for change or your nervous system and you're not finding it, let us know about that. Maybe that's a medicine that other people need too. This conversation has been medicine for my soul. <laughs> and especially at a time when I was feeling, you know, you know how it goes, man. I mean, I don't know if it still goes this way for you, but it's ups and downs. And one day it's terrible news. The next day you're feeling motivated as hell. Um, this was very useful. I think this conversation in and of itself will be very useful for organizers. One thing about that, um, I mean, certainly I have my ups and downs like everyone, but I think understanding how things move in cycles has been helpful to me. Um, I think that pretty much most of what I needed to know as an organizer, I learned by playing in the forest when I was a kid instead of sitting in front of a screen. And I wanted to mention that too in the context of climate change, that all of the work that I do is based on understandings of ecology and ecosystems, and that includes our nervous system as part of that. So that um, when I look at the systems involved in climate change, which is really interlocking ecosystems, you know, interlocking with industrial systems and so forth, um, what I see is not um, a an ecological crisis, but a constellation of them. So that collapse is not something that happens to everything all at once. It happens to particular ecosystems, support systems. There are shifts that the natural world adapts to fairly quickly because it has to in some ways. It changes the ecosystem in a lot of ways. Um, some are reversible. Some are not, and, and they're going to result in other kinds of change. But we need to break it down, and we need to grieve for each of these components. When we grieve for the whole world, it means we're giving up. And that doesn't allow us to see the opportunities. When we just grieve for the polar bears, you know, or the starfish, then we still have the relationship with the rest of the world. And we say, oh, well, this is where support is needed. What is the strategic place? If you defend a field by the side of the, um, of the coast from a hotel resort project, you're, you're protecting the animals and the creatures who live in that field. If you defend a mangrove, you're protecting the spawning ground for thousands of miles of ocean, a migratory resting place for birds and other things, a nutrition-rich place where small fish, crabs, and other creatures can survive until they're big enough to go out and brave the predators of the open sea so that where we, we can choose in fighting climate change, in resisting oppression, and bringing down an empire, think of where's the, where are the pressure points? Where can we put our attention so that the least amount of pressure will cause release the mo most amount of power from the people, from the land? All right. Well, after that, you're going to have to promise me that you'll do this again sometime uh, before the year ends because <laughs> I've got I got another hour that I could ask you. Uh, man, I can listen to you for hours and hours. I can't tell you enough. I mean, I'm not, you know... Mm. Uh, yeah, I'm sure, you know, you, I don't mean to overly compliment you, but you know how, I mean, I, you know. These conversations I feel are as much an important part of my work as any of the other things I do. So okay. of course, where I'm invited and, and where it's deemed helpful, I'm happy to engage. Oh, well, yeah, we appreciate it. I mean, Serge has been behind the, Serge has been behind the camera, just nodding and smiling the whole time. So he, <laughs> he's also, yeah. he also, uh, well, Serge was born in Ukraine and then he came over here, uh, when he was a teenager to the United States. And then we met in the Marine Corps, we were in the same platoon together. And then we went to Iraq mm -hmm. and then yeah. we, uh, you know, became politicized by, I don't know, taking a lot of drugs and reading a lot of books in the Marine Corps. <laughs> so, yeah. you know. Well, say hello to Michigan City for me. I used to hitchhike past there all the time. Oh, right on. <laughs> right on, Ricardo. Well, hey, man, thank you very much. I, I can't tell you enough how much we appreciate it. I enjoyed the hell out of this conversation. It was more than useful, right. and we look forward to doing it again sometime. All right, take care. All right, take care. 
You've been watching Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we'll talk to you soon. Pow! Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at parkmedia, Facebook at politics, art, roots, culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.